So as uh, Terry mentioned, my name is Jonathan, one of the pastors here. Uh, we are in the fourth week of Advent. It is a little strange that the fourth week of Advent fell on December 24th this year, but nevertheless, uh, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent uh, service. So you come back later this afternoon, uh, early evening for uh, Christmas Eve specific, okay? Uh, but this morning we're going to read uh, from John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 18. Uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen behind me uh, in the Pew Bible. It's on page 886 uh, if you want to grab one of those or the Bible you brought from home. Uh, but here, God's word from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Would you say with me, uh, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, amen. I, I want to ask you uh, this question. Uh, I, I missed the uh, typo in your worship folder. What the meaning of Christmas supposed to say, what's the meaning of Christmas? Apologize for that. That's on me. Um, but seriously, what is the meaning of Christmas? If you were to uh, ask, you know, 10 people, neighbors, co-workers, uh, we might at my house enjoy Hallmark Christmas movies for way too many days of the year. Um, and oftentimes, you know, there's the cheesy bits in those movies where somebody talks about the meaning of Christmas. You know, it's family or it's your heart or it's home or some other kind of corny explanation. Uh, but I would submit to you that uh, the meaning of Christmas very plainly is here in uh, John because most of us are probably familiar uh, with the Christmas stories in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, or at least if you're not familiar with Christianity or the Bible, you know the general gist of those stories, right? Mary and Joseph, the stable, the manger, shepherds visiting, angels singing, the facts of Christmas. But the first chapter of John is really trying to answer the question, what does it all mean? 
John's gospel begins very differently, and yet he's trying to tell us something about the meaning of Christmas too. He begins the story from a different perspective. In fact, I would say John chapter 1, verse 14, is one of the most startling statements in the history of the world. It should rattle the tectonic plates of our imagination because it is claiming something utterly astounding. Christmas in a nutshell, the word became flesh. Just those four words. Uh, this Advent season, we've been contemplating God's relational presence with his people, which of course culminates in the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, which is why the series name is Emmanuel. And many of you know what Emmanuel means. If you don't, it means God with us, literally speaking. Do you ever say to a friend, I'm with you. I'm with you. I understand. I'm with you. I'm, I'm tracking with you. Maybe they're going through a hard time. Uh, maybe they're complaining about something. Maybe they're sharing something really, really fun and, and, and joyful. And you say, I'm with you. Jesus is God's I'm with you. Okay? The Christian doctrine of the incarnation is unique among world religions because the word incarnation literally means in the flesh. To incarnate with someone is to so identify with their world, it's as if you were in their shoes. So you're literally wanting to put on their shoes. I tried to explain this one time as graphically as I could when I uh, had the opportunity to do the person of Jesus study in the jail in Bartow. And I said to the guys, it was as if I came in here, spent the night tonight, put on that orange jumpsuit, and kind of experienced life in your shoes. That would be me incarnating with you. What's it feel like to be them? That's incarnation. And Christianity says that, the, that, that uh, God himself would so identify with us that he would in-flesh himself. John is claiming nothing less than the incarnation of the eternal Logos, God the Son. Uh, and I, I use the word Logos because that is the word that John uses in this chapter uh, in the Greek. Now, if you go back in your worship folder to uh, the assurance of pardon from Colossians, uh, Paul, to the church there, describes Jesus. And he says things like, By him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, this is the one that gets me, in him all things hold together. Your body's atoms are being held together at the present moment by the word of the baby. That's what Christmas means. That's what Christmas is about. Now, there's just two points in your outline. And normally, Drew is the only one courageous enough to try to pull off two points. I always need three, uh, but I'm going to try here. Uh, now, there are some sub points. So, I, I, I have learned, I've learned that trick over the years, Okay. But the two points are this. They're printed for you in your worship folder. The word became flesh to make us his children. Okay? The word became flesh to make us his children. So why is this so significant, John, talking about the word, the word, the word, right? You can't really know a person 
let's be honest, unless you've met them and spoken to them, you might have a judgment or an opinion about them from seeing them or experiencing them or watching them. But if you really want to know a person, you ask them for their story, right? Family background, where they grew up, where they went to school, and all that requires words. And in the same way, in order for God to fully reveal himself to the world, his word, the word, had to come. Better yet, had to become something he was not. The word became flesh. And in the Old Testament, and John's uh, original uh, readers would have been uh, pretty familiar with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God's word was his self-expression or speech. Through his word, you learned who he was. You learned about him. You learned his personality. You learned the things that mattered to him. What was the first thing he did when he took the people out of Egypt and brought them to Sinai? He gave them the ten words. So John's gospel begins with the logos, which is this Greek word translated word. And for the Greeks and the Romans, you have to understand the universe had an order and the word logos wasn't important. It was a vital word to them. But to them, it just meant an impersonal principle that was at the heart of the universe. Uh, one way to put this that I read this week was the, the logos was the reason for reason. Okay? Uh, we get our word logic or logical from the Greek word logos. So to connect, for Greeks and Romans, to connect to the very center of the universe was to connect to the logos, whatever that meant. And they would have been tracking with John, if you would have, say, been at a coffee shop in the first century, you open up the Gospel of John with your Greek friend who grew up reading stories of Zeus and uh, Hermes and all of that, they would have been tracking with you as you began to read. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and in him was life, and all of this stuff. And then you get to verse 14, and John says, The Logos became a piece of meat. Because the word flesh in Greek could be translated meat. And most scholars think John was very intentional in his use of that word because he's trying to prove or trying to show in light of some early heresies that were floating around in the first century about Jesus, no, he really was flesh. He wasn't a humanoid. He didn't appear to be a human. He wasn't kind of a human. He was completely and thoroughly and fully a human. Now, many people will say, and you may have found yourself saying this at some point, or you know somebody that does, I, I need logical arguments. I need watertight reasons to prove the existence of God. I need someone to prove it's true, or how does it work? Can you prove that it works? And the teaching of the passage is, in Jesus Christ, the Logos, God has provided a person, not an argument. And so to see Christianity working, God says, look at Jesus. Look at his claims, look at his behavior, look at his cadences, his pacing. John is saying to the Jews and the Greeks and to us, right, to know God is to know the Logos, and the Logos became flesh. In the ancient world, for God or the gods to put on flesh was scandalous. That's why this verse, 
verse 14, is so utterly preposterous to the minds of the Greeks and the Romans, and indeed many people today, right? Why would God become human? The divine, the transcendent, the out there, would never associate with or come to mix themselves in with the stuff of the material world. The Greek and the Roman gods and goddesses, many of you uh, remember those stories from school? They were hilarious, many of them. And they were hilarious because the the Greek uh, and Roman gods and goddesses would come down from the mountain and they would be disguised as humans, right? And they would try to act like humans. Well, they weren't really human. But all the Greeks and the Romans knew to do would say that they, they, they're going to act like us, even though they're not really us. So they would have these superhuman or supernatural uh, traits, but they would, uh, well, steal each other's spouses and all kinds of crazy stuff. And early on in the history of the church, there were those who taught Jesus didn't really become human. He only seemed to be human, but it wasn't real. His sufferings weren't real. If you'd have gone up to him on the cross and poked him, what you would have been poking is this mirage, if you will. They were also those who said his divine and human nature never merged into one person. They were really two entities. And so you have the divine logos on the one hand and the human Jesus on the other That's confusing, I know. But I want to go back to John because he is not mincing words. John says, the one in whom all things hold together becomes a baby who must be held. B.B. Warfield, uh, who was a, a, a theologian at Princeton in the early 20th century, he said this, explained it really well and I liked it, so I wanted to read it to you. The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man. One who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is, on whose mighty arm we can rest and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. We cannot afford to lose either the God in the man or the man in God. Our hearts cry out for the complete God-man whom the scriptures offer to us. Don't you see? Don't you see how incredibly crucial the incarnation is? In terms of Christianity's distinctiveness, a, a, Muslim, a Muslim does not get this. They don't get a God who becomes like them who's relatable. So they go to the mosque and they pray to Allah, hoping Allah might hear them, but they don't ever know if he really does. And he certainly can't identify with them. He certainly can't sympathize with them. And Christianity teaches, well, not that. Because in Christianity, what you have is John, the gospel writer and apostle, confronting us with a God who is not serenely detached from the world, above and outside the struggles and heartaches and joys and fears of humanity. Instead, we are confronted with a God who cares so passionately and loves so sacrificially that the word through whom all things came to be takes on flesh. God created the universe by the word of his power. The Bible tells us. And now the word of God, the logos, the starting point of all things, is confining himself to space and time. Go to verse 14. 
because we want to meditate on these things uh, a little bit deeper for a few minutes. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the word dwelt uh, that's translated there in English is the same word for tabernacled. John literally says that Jesus pitched a tent. The message says he moved into the neighborhood. Again, that's a shocking claim in the ancient world and in our world too. (laughs) In John's day, People in Israel didn't live in tents. He's being intentional in his use of this word, reminding his readers of the Old Testament. Because as we've seen already in the uh, series, and if you haven't been here, I'd encourage you to go back and uh, listen to the first uh, three weeks of sermons as we've kind of traced this theme throughout the Bible. God tabernacled with his people in the desert. And it was supposed to prove to them how badly he wanted to be near them, how badly he wanted to be with them. One commentator says, we are reminded both of the tabernacle in the wilderness and of the prophetic imagery of Yahweh tabernacling in the midst of his people and of the Shekinah glory which he causes to dwell among them. Only now, the place of his dwelling is the flesh of Jesus. All the ways of God's tabernacling in Israel had been transitory or incomplete, right? And yet... All are fulfilled by the word made flesh dwelling among us. Jesus, in the end, is the culmination of them all. Jesus tabernacling among us means accessing God's presence is possible personally through him. Again, that is a shocking claim. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying you can access personally, talk to, relate to, and communicate with The God of the universe, the God in whom all things hold together, the God through whom all things were made, including every single cell in your body. You don't have to travel anywhere. There's no temple stairs to climb. There's no physical location. But embodied in a person, God is touchable, seeable, relatable. Now, imagine this. Imagine a Christian in the first century. They're having coffee with their pagan neighbor, again, um, And the first question that the pagan asks the Christian is, okay, yeah, I get it. Where's your temple? Where's your temple? Where do you go to make your sacrifices? And the Christian says, well, we don't have a temple because Jesus is our temple. What? Jesus, that human dude that was walking around 10, 20 years ago, I heard a lot about him. Supposedly came back from the dead or something like that. You say he's your temple? It didn't make any sense. But all throughout the Bible, we are forecasted toward Jesus. In 2 Chronicles 6, I'm just going to give you a couple examples. In 2 Chronicles 6, at the dedication of the temple, King Solomon asks this question as he prays. Will God intend, excuse me, will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And yet... What does John 1.14 say? The word became flesh. John's answer to Solomon's question is a resounding yes. One of the Puritans said, What a wonder is it that a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle, the thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. That's getting at it. The incarnation is the fulfillment of God's words all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. No religion in the history of the world records their God saying the following words. 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. The God of the Bible is so committed to the rescue and redemption of his people, indeed of the whole world, that he enters it. Sorry for my voice doing that, but I, I don't really know how else to respond to that. I mean, it's kind of like a mind-blowing thing. That one's intentional, that second one. See, Jesus is the proof that God sees you. Whether you're wealthy or poor, man or woman, PhD or GED, God came to earth for you. And you get that promise, you get that confirmation in John's teaching here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says, and we have seen his glory. John is saying that God's glorious presence is now revealed personally and powerfully to all people, allowing them to see the face of God in Jesus. Jesus is God's Shekinah glory. The glory that rested in the tabernacle restricted Moses from entering Exodus chapter 40. Uh, Drew talked about that a couple of weeks ago. When it finally did rest in the tabernacle, even Moses couldn't go in. The glory that fills the temple in Ezekiel's vision, uh, a few chapters after the passage that we talked about last week, the Valley of the Dry Bones, Ezekiel 43, it, it, the, the glory comes to rest in the temple in, in uh, Ezekiel's vision, and it causes him to face plant. That glory, John says, is now seen with your eyes. You can see it in the face of Jesus Christ, the glorious impossible. Love that song. The temple, the tabernacle, was the place where God and man met, and so it is with Jesus. He's the temple. God and man meet in one place. Isn't that cool how God does that or did that? Now, I want to circle back to the quote on your outline from the English poet George Herbert. Uh, you see it there. In Christ, two natures met to be your cure. What's the cure? Why do you need a cure? Well, what person needs a cure? A person who's sick. A person who's dying. And so Jesus, as the better temple, is the cure for the temple. Because in him, the God-man, we have one who sacrificed himself for sin, dying a sinner's death, offering himself as an obedient servant. Look back again, Colossians chapter 1, in the assurance of pardon, Paul says about Jesus, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. God and sinners reconciled in the God-man. All because we needed a cure. And praying toward the end of his life, Jesus defines eternal life very simply. He says, it is to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And if Christianity is a person, not a religion, then to know that person is to know life. The life that is the light, John says. The light that shines in the darkness. Do you know him? John goes on to say in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only one that is Jesus, he has made him known. And later in John's gospel, Jesus says things like this. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or I and the Father are one. Now, let's table how complex all that is for a moment. We can talk about that in the new year. 
It'll still be mysterious January 1st, okay? Right? I don't fully understand it. I'm trying to figure it out too. Uh, but let's table all that and let's just take Jesus at his word. If you're here and you're unsure about Christianity or you got dragged here by family members, right? Whatever, okay? Whatever it is, I just want to ask you to take Jesus at his word for a moment, okay? His claims at their word of face value for a moment. And if it's true, and Jesus really was the God-man, and if his life reveals who God is, when you see him, you're seeing God in action. And then if that's true, what kind of God are we talking about? When God takes on flesh and moves into the neighborhood, how does he behave? Who exactly are you getting to know? I think it's worthy questions to ask. And the incarnation proves that no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. He has no prerequisites. He has no hoops for you to jump through. The minimum bar to be unfolded, excuse me, enfolded into his embrace is simply open yourself up to him. You don't have to unburden or put yourself together before coming to Jesus. He's the most gentle, least abrasive person you've ever met. He has infinite strength on the one hand and infinite meekness in the same person. C.S. Lewis said he has a combination of great ferocity, like a lion, and extreme tenderness, like a lamb. Huh, wonder where he got that from. Christianity, excuse me, Christmas, is proof that in your smallness, God notices you. In your sinfulness, he draws near to you. He's not, ugh. And in your anguish, He's in solidarity with you. The, 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 the anguish and the frustration and, that, and the, the, the anger that drove those men <clears throat> on September 11, 2001 to, to fly those airplanes uh, into those buildings, they weren't sure that he was in solidarity with them even as they sacrificed their life for him. But our God, our God proves that he's in solidarity with us by coming to be in the anguish. Every emotion, every temptation, he has experienced all of it. Every emotion you've had, every temptation you've had, he's experienced all of it. He challenges our claims that we can't relate to God or that God doesn't know what it's like to be us. No one has ever seen God and lived until now. So here's a snapshot before I move on of God with us. Some of the things that you'll see him uh, doing. And the Gospels, again, if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so helpful in this snapshot. So all I did was just take from them. You'll see him dining with Pharisees, all of whom were against him. They judged him. They doubted him. He still moved toward them. You'll see him angry especially when the weak are used as pawns against him, you'll see him stopping to ask a blind person how he can serve them. You'll see him sighing at ears that don't work right and being amazed at the faith of a Roman soldier. And when God with us encounters the death of a good friend, you'll see him enraged. I wish I could use the word I really wanted to use, but I can't. It starts with a P. Use your imagination. But that was him. That's what, this, that's what the Greek says. 
He was enraged at death's destruction, at sadness, at grief. You'll see him dependent. He says, I can't do anything by myself. He's always slowing down to notice the insignificant like children. The hymn says, let every heart prepare him room. Why should I? And I would say, why not? John says Jesus' own didn't receive him, but some did. And that is where I want to finish. Because Jesus, who was born of God, makes it possible for us to be born of God. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say about a result of the incarnation. But I just want to finish by thinking about this one result that John highlights. So if you look at verses 12 and 13... John says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And John says, Jesus Christ became what he was not in order to make it possible for you and I to become what we were not. Jesus was counted as an enemy on the cross. He was cast off from fellowship with his father so that you and I who only deserve to be treated as enemies of God, might gain a new status. That's what John says here. I heard it described uh, this past week this way. At Christmas, the ideal became real. The incarnation is God's guarantee that anything or anyone, any situation can change. The word became flesh for crying out loud. The ideal takes on and becomes real. No one has ever seen God. That's true. At least, and lived. And John says, but this one who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Whatever reality you're facing, Jesus coming into the world, the ideal of heaven itself, is smashing a wrecking ball through the concrete barrier that we have erected separating the real from the ideal, saying, he doesn't care. It doesn't matter. What's the point? The word became flesh. That's the point. God cared enough to enter in. That's the point. And so things will never change. That person will never change. If if reality as we know it has changed because the very word of God became flesh, then whatever reality looks like for you today, it's not the end of the story. I don't know what the end of the story is. But I know that part of the story is the word became flesh and pitched a tent in our midst to live with and for and in us. If the eternal son of God took on flesh to ransom us, to turn enemies, excuse me, to take enemies and turn them into sons, then anything is possible. And man, I need to believe that really bad right now in my life. How about you? Heaven, you see, will be full of children who were once enemies. In fact, there isn't going to be one child of God who wasn't first an enemy. That's amazing. The ideal invaded the real. If you look closely at uh, verse 12, John says he gave the right to become the children of God. There's a change in status, a legal transaction that John is alluding to. And many of you know this. Some of you know it firsthand in your own families. But when an adoption is finalized, the child gets a new name, a new name attached to a new family. But that child didn't do anything to earn it. They became something they weren't before. 
And in the same way, we become the children of God. It is God alone who initiates and completes our adoption into his family, only through Jesus, born of God himself. There's no magic bloodline that makes it so some people are just born into God's family. Well, guess you got lucky there. John says, verse 13, these people who receive him who believed in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. There's no work you can do or list you can accomplish to make you part of God's family. There's no person who can, with the right amount of money or influence or education, gain themselves a part in God's family. You can only become a child of God by being born of God. Jesus called it being born again or born from above. He told Nicodemus in the couple of chapters later, John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a very religious, moral, successful guy, he said, no amount of religious observance or obedience is going to get you into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. Very smart guy. That's a head scratcher. That's literally what he said. I, what? How can, some, how can that happen? As children, the promise or as a result of being children, the promise is God relates to us intimately. You can ask him for whatever you need, anytime, anywhere. Jesus used a term of tender affection called Abba, which the closest thing for us is daddy. And the, the apostle Paul says, all the children of God can use that now. As children, our status guarantees an inheritance, not only an intimacy, but an inheritance, eternal life in the presence of God himself. Can you imagine living in perpetual Emmanuel? Not only that, the Bible says God's people will rule the renewed earth forever. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. The intimacy of his presence, which creates a carelessness in his care, and the confidence of that eternal inheritance what else can we do as children other than celebrate? Rejoice. The theme today is joy. Tidings of great joy, the angel said. News of great joy. There's nothing like the joy of children, is there? I wanted to show you a, a, a video of um, my niece and nephew uh, trying to uh, adopt this little one uh, up in the uh, Chattanooga area. Uh, and we've got this video on our phone, but I, I think there's some laws around it uh, because he's not legally theirs yet. But uh, we have a video of my nephew tickling him, and I watched it two or three times this week. Man, there's nothing like the joy of children. Okay, let me move right on from that to <laughs> finish with this. This was profound uh, for me, and I, I just wanted to share it with you because... The reality is, if the word became flesh to make us his children, then when the words fear not are said, man, they really can begin to deepen, take root down into the depths of our soul and change the way we live. Do you remember at the end of Charlie Brown Christmas, at the end, uh, when they're frustrated because they're uh, rehearsing and Charlie Brown does his thing, everything I touch turns to mush, you know, and... Uh, anybody going to tell me what Christmas is all about? You know, and Linus finally looks at him and says, I'll tell you what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Lights, please. And he goes to the center of the stage, and he starts to re uh, rehearse Luke chapter 2, 
But what do you know about Linus? What's Linus always have in his hand? He's got that blue blanket. You know when Linus drops his blanket? When he says, fear not. The birth of Jesus can deliver us from our fears. It can free us from the habits that we are unable or unwilling in and of ourselves to break. It can allow us to simply drop the false security we've been grasping so tightly to and learn to trust and cling to him instead. Born of God, you can become a child of God. All those are marks of children, right? The word became flesh, became orphaned on the cross so that we might be given new status as sons and daughters of God. John says, from his fullness we have all received. What? Grace upon grace. We are covered, kept, and hidden in Christ. Who needs a blanket? Joy to the world, the hymn writer says, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Uh, we're going to come to the table for the last time in the season of uh, Advent this morning. And so uh, I'm going to pray and get this other microphone on. So uh, just be uh, patient for a moment here. Pray with me, Lord Jesus. We do marvel uh, that you, the God-man, would become what you were not to make it possible for us to become what we were not, that is, children of the living God, sons and daughters of the Most High. We who only deserved to be enemies because we matter to ourselves more than you do. But we thank you for the grace upon grace that we can receive in you. We thank you that in you, having made known God, in you we can know him, we can see him, we can relate to him. And so wherever we most need to be reminded of that and encouraged in that truth this morning, I pray for every person here that you would meet them wherever that spot is, as only you can, because you promised to, because the word became flesh. Thank you for that great truth, and we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, amen. Uh, join us 4 and 530. Uh, if you can't, for whatever reason, uh, Merry Christmas. We do hope that you have a blessed time uh, enjoying one another, your family, friends, uh, and celebrating the fact that the word became flesh. That verse, or excuse me, that uh, psalm we just sang at the end says, With the Lord there is steadfast love and plenty of redemption. And I love plenty of redemption. So if you feel I'm unredeemable, he says, no, there's plenty of redemption. And the proof is in the word becoming flesh. So if your faith is in Christ, receive the promise of this benediction. As you go, he goes with you because our God is <clears throat> Emmanuel. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Merry Christmas.